at a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. This is a special Best of Caller Questions Invest Talk compilation program. Remember, the Invest Talk phone lines never close. Please call with questions 888 99CHART. 888-99-CHART. They will be played and answered on an upcoming Invest Talk podcast. Welcome to Invest Talk, above average investing for the average investor. We try to bring you useful information and answer any questions you might have, as long as they're financial. 888-99-CHART is our number, 888-992-4278. Let's go to Saeed in Texas. Hi, Saeed. Hi, uh... Hi, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for the call. Thank you. So, yeah, um, I'm calling about my uh, retirement and HSA funds, also my son's 529. Uh, this is back in early 22, taking your advice. <clears throat> I had, a sh- you know, shrunk my uh, growth portfolio to about 15% of my overall portfolio. Uh-huh. So I, uh, I, I had cut down, um, had, but, but um, you know, I was, uh, this week, I was trying to rebalance my portfolio, and uh, uh, you know, I, I literally, my growth portfolio across all of my uh, funds haven't done that that well. So, no, no. Uh, two questions: Should I, should I, uh, you know, my growth funds literally are down about thirty percent across all of my portfolios? So should I just completely get out of them, or should I just going forward? Uh, in 2023, at least not invest in them any further and just focus on the value side of the market. Well, how much did you say that the growth portfolio is of your por- of your overall portfolio? Is it? Did you say 30%? It's about 15%. 15%. Um, I would say no. I yeah. would not sell that because growth will come back. Uh, it's just out of favor, big time. And you know, we, we talked about that a couple of years ago that it probably would be out of favor. And therefore, you should cut back and concentrate more on the value side. Now, the growth portfolios are down about 30%. Value portfolios are down about 12 15%. So they're down too. Don't think that they perform this way outperformed growth. And we think value going forward for the next few years is probably going to continue to outperform growth. But that doesn't mean you get out of it because we don't know that. We don't know that. We just think that because of the way the market works and the different dynamics going on. So I don't know if I'd get out if I only had 15% in growth. Is it is it ETFs, mutual funds, or individual stocks that you have in growth? Yeah, in my uh, across my retirement, uh, you know, uh, portfolios. These are mostly just uh, mutual, mutual funds. funds and index funds. Yeah, then I'd leave them alone. Uh, I would leave it alone. Fifteen percent okay. is not that much, and just concentrate on adding some value funds. That's what I would do. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Hey, Stephen, Justin, this is Marco from New Jersey. Thanks for all that you do. Love the show. Have a question. I'm I'm trying to expand my portfolio into bonds, listening to some of your advice, and I think Nordstrom 
as a retailer, focusing on luxury, but also having the off-price channel is a, a good strategic retailer to invest in. But I was thinking about buying the bonds as opposed to investing in the stock. And right now, there's uh, some that are out there on TD Ameritrade that are like priced at like $90.50 with a, just about a 7% coupon. The yield to worst is 7.5%, and they expire in 2028, and they're not callable. So it's, I've never bought a bond before. I'm starting to experiment with it, and I felt like, hey, if this is a company that I think is going to survive, maybe going with a bond that's you know a better place in the structure of a company is, is a good way to do this and make a solid return of over 7% for the next several years. So again, we'd love your thoughts on this, and thanks for your advice. Take care. Great call because I like that he's thinking about the capital structure, understanding that bonds are much higher on the capital structure, and it's a safer way to play a particular company. And in this market where bond yields have gone up pretty dramatically, you're getting some pretty nice yields, especially in the corporate space. Now for Nordstrom, uh, I, I believe I, I know which uh, which one he's looking at, at least that maturity yields a coupon 6.95%. So that's where he's getting that about 7% coupon. But remember, you're trading at a discount. So that's not what you really want to look at. You want to look at things like yield to worst right now on this is somewhere in the eight and a quarter to eight and a half range, somewhere there, depending on you know what price you would get it at. Uh, the last offer was on, on my sheet is a uh, 94 spot one. So yeah, nice eight point, call it 4% uh, yield. And that's gonna be a safer way to play Nordstrom's. All you have to do is, you know, at least have a, a good sense that they're going to stick around and stay in business for the next five, five and a half years, right? A little over five years because it matures on uh, in March of, of 2028. So I like this play. I, I like the way you're thinking and it, it would diversify it uh, a bit more, your portfolio. And you're buying an individual bond, uh, getting a much higher yield. And this is what I say when you get, when you're, when you're buying corporate bonds, you can get seven, eight plus percent return right now. You just have to do the requisite equity research to say, okay, is this company really going to be around through a cycle? And Nordstrom, you know, it's higher end uh, retailer, and those typically hold up better um, in recession because wealthy people still, they spend. Um, so I like this. Uh, so I'm going to give Nordstrom Bonds a uh, thumbs up. Now it is rated double B plus, which technically is junk, but that's uh, basically the highest rating in the junk category. Thanks for the call. You can call right now and be part of the program. Let's hear about what your talking point is. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. And you can get through right now. When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast. How do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. I just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap, because there's a lot of regulatory risk. Here. And Steve Peasley. I, I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson Foods, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the 
entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24-7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888-99-CHART. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. Hello, this is Duncan from New York. I just wanted to ask a quick question about what to do when you're planning on investing in more value stocks that have dividends. I was listening to a couple of podcasts ago that I, I just wanted to confirm, is it better to put it in a taxable account or a retirement account? I have both, but with this change in the economic scenery, I just didn't know if I should, you know, I, I want to do both. So can you just clarify the benefits and the disadvantages of a dividend paying stock in a taxable and a non-retirement, or sorry, a retirement account? Thank you very much and have a great day. Bye. Well, the great thing about dividends in a non-taxable account is that you don't have to pay taxes on your dividends. So if I get a choice, I would probably go there first. On a taxable account, you're going to have to pay taxes on those dividends. Now, you can manage those taxes by dollar cost, you know, not dollar cost, but by uh, um, taking uh, capital losses toward the end of the year if you have them in your portfolio to offset any kind of capital gains. There's things you can do tax-wise to try to minimize that. But the choice, if you're given the choice, a simple choice between taxable and non-taxable, I would do non-taxable because there's no taxes. That's pretty simple, okay? If given a choice. If, you know, if not, then, you know, we had to go taxable route. The Invest Talk Voice Bank never closes. I have a question for you about Amazon. So your questions keep coming. Question about PE ratios. And that's okay because Steve Peasley and Justin Klein specialize in unbiased guidance. If I'm looking at a dividend company, I'm looking for consistency of earnings and dividends. Your standard daily chart typically goes back one year. Steve and Justin are fearless, so don't forget to call Invest Talk 888-99 Chart. I want to have your opinion on uh, adding small and medium cap to the S&P 500 since the S&P 500 is only large cap. I'm thinking to add some mid cap and small cap. Is it a good idea or uh, S&P 500 is enough to cover the United States stocks? Thank you so much. Well, the S&P 500 is the top 500 or the largest 500 companies, basically, in the universe traded on on our stock exchange. And they will miss a bunch of small caps and mid caps. They will miss some of those. But I don't think you need to have that exposure down there. You don't need to have it. I'd rather see if you're going to change up exposure, change it it like value funds versus growth funds. I'd rather see you have some value uh, index funds as opposed to growth index funds at this time. But, you know, you don't have to do that either. S&P 500 as an index is 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 a very broad index. 80% of the stocks are represented in there. So I see nothing wrong with just having that if that's where you want to go. That's the route you want to take. 
This is Alan from Hayward, California. My question is, if an insider purchases $5 million worth of stock, but his net worth is $650 million, does his purchase tell you that he has serious conviction in the stock? Or does it tell you maybe he bought it only for cosmetic purposes? Assuming all things are equal, would a $5 million purchase from an insider catch your attention? Thanks. Love the show. Well, insider buying is always a positive. You can't say that it's a bad thing. Uh, but, you know, if, they, if they're worth $600 million, is $500 million that impactful for them? Or $5 million that impactful? You know, not really, but it's still money, right? It's still seven figures. Uh, you, you know, I look at it more of what, how is this out of the norm? Right, because because sometimes the insider buying is just simply executing the options that are given to them, that are expiring, for example. Um, so you really have to look at it in context. The same with selling. A lot of times people say, "Oh, insiders are selling." Well, many times they're selling because they are they, they don't maybe make a huge salary, but their stock based compensation is significant, and they consistently sell on a regular schedule. So it's definitely something to look at, something to consider, but it's also not the only data point that I'm going to use. It's going to need to be a lot of factors that go into me buying it. That's, that's good. That's good that uh, insiders are confident in the company and its future, but it's not the end all be all. Hello, Justin and Steve. I appreciate all the work that you do for us listeners, and so I hopefully can give you something back in the form of a book recommendation. I know you guys are into that. So a book that I've read recently on you know, maintaining what you call financial freedom, uh, one particular man's opinion, Morgan Housel, The Psychology of Money. I think it's a really great read for uh, your listeners. Also, based on what he advises ultimately in the book is investing in retirement through index funds. So I was just wondering if my strategy through my 403B and the teacher's retirement fund is valid if I do like 30% each in three Vanguard index funds and just keep pumping into those over the years. Is this a good long-term strategy? Thank you for your advice. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Yes, that is not, that is a good strategy. That is not a bad strategy to do that. Now, I want to make sure that they're not, you're not overlapping too much. Three separate indexes, make sure they are different parts of the market. Um, I would suggest a good a third in a value fund at this stage. And uh, so I, I would suggest maybe a mid-cap or large-cap value fund. Um, I don't uh, – at this stage, I would not recommend a growth fund. If you had an index of commodities, I might suggest that. And then, then probably one of the S&P 500, more broadly. That's kind of where I would be at this moment in time. It doesn't necessarily doesn't mean I would not switch. I would could switch because I would know when maybe it's time to be exit the commodities now and get back into growth stocks. You know, so but you know you could just you could just do three index uh, funds in different sectors of the market are fine. You can do small, large, mid cap indexing. You know, small companies, mid capies, mid sized companies, and large companies. You know, there's different ways to do that, but it all will work. Okay? You're listening to Invest Talk, everybody. I'm Steve Peasley. We want to answer your questions. Our listener line number is always ready for you 888 99Chart. Beginning our experience, we're here to answer your questions.
You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99 Chart, 888 99 C H A R T, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. Hey, Steve or Justin, Joe from South Carolina here. I have a question about mortgages. So I have a mortgage at about 3.3%, and I have been paying like an extra $300 a month towards it. That's obviously some of the most conservative things I do because I also invest in the market and I do some peer-to-peer loan investing and some other things. But I always viewed that as kind of a safe 3.3% return. And about two, three years ago, that was not bad because my high-yield savings account was only giving me 0.05% interest. But now markets by Goldman Sachs, I think the last time I looked, they're at 3% for a high-yield savings account. So with that change in interest rates, does it even make sense to pay the mortgage off earlier now? I mean, if I can get 3% by sticking it into a savings account, should I maybe take that extra money and look at like a money market or bonds? or something like that just as a safe play that could produce a little bit better return in this environment. So just wanted to get your thoughts on that. I'll listen for the answer on the podcast. Thanks, guys. Yeah, the way that you're thinking is smart. Now, how to execute that effectively, that's another question because there's things to weigh. Now, one of the drawbacks of adding to your mortgage Right, paying a little bit extra, like you said, three hundred bucks a month, is that it's not easy to get that money out once you put it in. You got to refinance your mortgage, get a HELOC, etc. It's a process, and there's often costs to, to that process. But it's kind of a, a, a nice way to save, and like you said, automatically, basically earn that yield on uh, that money because you're, you're you're effectively not paying it. So I, I like that plan. But now that rates are, are above that, Marcus is now at 3.3%. There are high-yield savings accounts, FDIC insured, that are above that. And what you're basically doing is turning yourself into, turning yourself into a little bank, right? You're even bo- you borrow at 3.3%, and then you're going to lend, basically, to Marcus or any of these other institutions at a higher rate. Uh, and it's liquid, right? You can take that money out very easily. So I think that's smarter at this point, as long as you're yielding higher than you are paying on that mortgage. So I agree with you. I would do it. Uh, try to, once again, get a little bit higher. Um, never, it could drop, right? The, the market's saying, hey, the Fed's going to cut rates by the end of next year, and that 3.3% rate of market is going to go away. But until then, uh, I think it's a smart move. This is Invest Talk. You can get your free Invest Talk podcast downloads anytime at iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or investtalk.com. I am a big fan of your podcast and I just got started with it. Be sure to tell your friends and family members about Invest Talk and encourage them to listen, rate, and review. The anytime listener lines never close. Steve and Justin are waiting for your questions. 888 99 chart. Hi, Leo from Los Gatos, California. Using the baseball analogy, we're in the first inning of people buying EVs. As we go down to the fifth inning, sixth inning, 
and further, is it common sense to figure the utility company is going to be making out because they have all the infrastructure in place already to charge the electrical vehicles? All they got to do is put adapters on them and, uh, to charge the cars up. Do you think utilities would benefit off this as we go along? I don't know if it's that easy to think that way, but it's a little common sense. What's your opinion? I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, you would think that's a pretty logical step, thinking in those terms, but I think it's going to be a lot more complex than that. First of all, remember, utilities are 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 uh, are very heavily um, um, very heavily organized and and controlled by the various states. So they can't just make profits. They can't just go and make hand over fish profits, not nearly as well as an oil company can, because they can't charge higher rates. Number two, they're going to have to spend a bunch of money to upgrade their utility grid and put more electricity on, build new power plants. They're going to spend a lot of money to do that because we don't have enough. As you said, uh, the EV electric vehicles are in their infancy. 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 What happens when they're in their middle uh, teens? Growing. Huge demand on electric grid for electric for charging your cars. Where's that electricity going to come from? Where's it going to come from? I mean, we can't get here in California. You can't get a power company rebuilt. There's no building a power company in California. The only thing you might be able to do is, well, you can put out some solar panels out there in the desert and generate electricity that way. You know how much that electricity costs? Two, three times or ten times? Way more than, you know, a natural gas power plant would cost or, you know, any other type. Way more. So... It's not going to be that simple. I wish it was because that would be a great you know, way to invest and say, you know, it's going to, and there will be a huge demand. It's, that's, that's a foregone conclusion. It will be. You can call right now and be part of the program. Let's hear about what your talking point is. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278, and you can get through right now. Trying to understand how to evaluate some of the oil stocks. Got a question for Steve or Justin? You're the best person to ask it at 888-99-CHART. And now's the best time. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the Internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, We need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools, 
to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. This is Eric calling from Los Angeles, longtime listener. Love the show. I have a general question. It's regarding the market and 401ks. I was wondering, do you find that the market tends to bump up? the day after paydays, which is every two weeks, people's contributions into their 401ks and suddenly the market goes up because there's this influx into all these different mutual funds. As a second part of that, would that be a good time to sell if the market's gonna have this minor blip up in those fees or or I mean in those stock prices? Just curious how that works or if that even is a possibility. Thanks. Good question. And it is something to think about because that's where a lot of the fund flows are coming from. 401k, 403b accounts, uh, company-based retirement accounts. Uh, The issue, though, is that everyone kind of gets paid on different schedules. Not everybody gets paid uh, every two weeks. Sometimes it's the first and the 15th. Uh, and I know at KPP, we pay our employees every two weeks. Uh, but you know, our two weeks might be different than another company's two weeks. And so, you know, and then the money might hit at different times. I know for, for us, you know, we might get paid on a Friday, but the money doesn't hit our 401k till I think Wednesday or Thursday of the following week. So they're, you know, and and that's going to probably differ depending on, you know, when the money is, is issued, uh, what bank it's going through, who the, the fund provider is. So I don't think there's, a, there, I haven't seen any data to show that this consistent, consistently shows up in fund flows on a particular day of the week or the month or anything like that. Uh, because I think it's just so spread out and it hits people's accounts differently. You know, for me, uh, I'll give you, uh, my 401k, I, I put it into money markets. Others have it automatically invested into certain funds. Um, you know, I can, then I take the money market and then I go uh, buy individual names, things like that. But um, yeah, it, it's just, it's a good question because that is under appreciated. It's just a consistent flow of capital into markets. Uh, but I have not seen a day uh, that will, or any study that shows a day uh, is when most of it shows up or anything like that. Thanks for the call. I have a question about a little bit of a different investment. Have you ever invested in peer-to-peer lending like Prosper or Lending Club? I have about four or $500 in there that I just kind of put to see how it would go, and it seems to be doing all right, but I didn't know if this is something maybe I should consider contributing monthly to with a small amount of money, or if you think it's a bad idea to have as part of your portfolio of investments. 
I will listen for the answer on the podcast. Thanks again for the show. You guys do a great job. Well, I think the simple answer is go look at Lending Club's chart. It continues to go down dramatically, which means that the quality of the borrowers on its, plat- on its platform are not doing so hot. Okay, so no, I, w- I would not be using these peer-to-peer lending platforms. Uh, it- it's more like a very high-risk bond, in my mind, and tied to individuals as opposed to corporations. So if you really want to take risk you can, and get 8 9 10% yields, go buy high-yield bonds. That's going to be much better, and you'll be able to do a little more research and, and find names that you like the trend of their business and their balance sheet, uh, then, you know, the opaqueness of, of what you're going to get over at a peer-to-peer lending site like like Prosper or Lending Club. So, uh, no, I would not be adding more to this. All right. This is Invest Talk, made possible by KPP Financial, where principals and Invest Talk hosts Steve Peasley and Justin Klein are independent financial advisors. For clients, they are fiduciaries. Steve and Justin have a duty and a commitment to always place the interests of their clients ahead of the firm. This is different from the way many other organizations operate. And one way you can realize the benefit of an association with KPP Financial is to know that KPP practices parallel investing. This means that the personal investment accounts of KPP principals participate with client investments at equal prices and percentages. It's an important difference. You can learn more anytime at investtalk.com or reach out to Steve Peasley and Justin Klein by emailing or calling their Irvine, California office. The InvestTalk radio and podcast continues now. The phone lines are open. Call with questions, 888-99-CHART. Hello, Steve and Justin. This is Mike from Florida. I just had a question about bonds. I really appreciate all the information you provide, and I'm sure you know probably the answer to this question. But I am 75 years old and now investing more in bonds and in stocks, and I've been listening to your program for a long time. That's really a big help. But I'm kind of new to bond investing. So the question is, is that let's say the coupon dividend or coupon is 1% or 1%, and then the yield to worst or yield to the end of the maturity, or I forget what you call it, is higher, like 4%. I don't understand how it could be higher than the coupon price. That's a question I had, and again, like I said, I really appreciate your program. Thank you very much. All right. Very simple here. You have a bond yielding, like you said, 1%. And there are uh, any bond uh, upon maturity, as long as it's in default, it's going to return your principal to you. Now, when you're looking at yield to maturity, yield to worst, there are two aspects of that return. One is the coupon, and the other is the price appreciation of the bond. Now, what you're looking at is a bond that's trading at a discount to par. And so over the life of the bond between now and maturity, the bond is going to go up in value, most likely. 
back as it gets closer to maturity to that 100 par level. It's probably trading at maybe 70 right now. And so your total return is going to be the coupon payments you get between now and, and maturity. And that difference between what you're paying for the bond today and what you're going to get upon maturity. Now, for some people, they don't want to wait, right? They want a higher coupon today. And so maybe yield to worse to yield to maturity is not the greatest arbiter of return for them. They want that consistent high income and there are bonds out there uh, they're fairly volatile because what's called convexity when you have low uh low payouts low low uh coupons that were issued you know when rates were rock bottom and these companies were smart you know they said i could pay one or two percent coupon on you know a 10 year bond great i'm gonna lock that in but for the bond holder it makes a bump for a bumpy ride. So that's where that yield, extra yield is coming from. It's the coupon rate as well as that appreciation of the bond between now and maturity. Do you have questions about FDIC security, mortgages, money market funds, losses to your retirement plans? Give us a call today, 888-99-CHART. Hi, Steve or Justin. This is Bill from San Diego. I own nine stocks and 12 ETFs. They are all in diversified different sectors. Is this a good strategy? Have a nice day and Merry Christmas. There's nothing wrong with having nine stocks and a bunch of ETFs. The ETFs, of course, are much more diverse. Uh, the wrong thing would be is if you own nine stocks in the same sector or one or two sectors and the ETFs in the same area as the market as each other. That would be wrong. So you got to you first got to achieve your proper diversification. And what is your goal of the stocks versus the ETFs? I mean, I'm, I'm, are you trying to grow your portfolio? Are you looking for dividends? You know, does the does the portfolio match your risk tolerance and your strategy? So, just telling me you have nine stocks and twelve ETFs doesn't tell me what your strategy is. So that's what's important. Is it matching what I'm after? Will I achieve what I think I'm going to achieve with what I have? And it could very well be. You could be right on the money. Um, I just can't answer that question other than there's nothing wrong with having that group of stocks and ETFs as long as it matches your goals and your strategy. Okay, let's squeeze in one more iTunes review question. Ryan Nolan wants to talk about a recession. Could you explain why you think the upcoming recession will be a mild one and not severe? I can, because the government has been still spending so much money that's sloshing around. Look at all the bills they've been passing. They passed that semiconductor bill, which was billions of dollars. They just passed another one, which is billions of more dollars. So from the from the... From the fiscal side of things, the government is still spending money. It's the Federal Reserve that's trying to cut back the excess spending. So because of that, I think that that money is still going to be around. They're still spending. They're still spending, you know, COVID stimulus money. That's why I just don't see it being that deep of a recession. I just don't see it. Of course, could it happen? Of course. 
No one knows for sure, but you know we don't. We've got a pretty strong job market. Uh, I, I just think that economy is still in a pretty good position, even with the Fed raising rates. I just don't. You know, the Fed has never gotten it right. They've always gotten it wrong. They might go. They might go too long in cutting. Are raising rates, they may go too long, and that will make it a deeper recession. And that's an unknown that I, you know, that is out there that could well happen, making my thought process all wrong. But I just don't think we're going to be in that deep of recession. We are going to go into recession. I just don't think it's going to be that bad. Hi, Stephen, Justin. Happy New Year to both of you. My question is about uh, some of the companies I hold. I was scrolling through the bond offerings on the secondary market. And I noticed that some of the companies I hold stocks and also have some bonds that are are highest yielding um, as far as corporate bonds, such as uh, Altria Group and uh, Canadian Natural Resources. I'm just wondering if that should be concerning to me, holding their stocks, that uh, they have bond offerings with such high yields compared to some of the other corporations out there. So hopefully you can uh, clarify whether that should be concerning or not. I uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, that's that's very good. That's a very good question, very good thinking on your part because you are adding to your risk if you own the stock and bonds of the same company. But I don't think it should be a, an overriding concern. Okay, I really don't. Especially the two companies you listed are pretty major companies. The bigger the companies, the safer they are, the more protections you have. And remember, in a, a bond, you're in a higher ownership position. If something does go wrong with a company, you get first pick of the assets. You get paid first, not the stockholders. Just don't overdo it. It's okay to have a couple of you know, bond and stock the same company, but not... Not not your whole portfolio have bonds and 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 stock owning the same company. That 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 would be wrong. Proper diversification is key. That's a key to managing a portfolio. Okay. Let's go to Jack and go to Nigel. How are you doing, Jack? Good. Thanks, Steve, for uh, taking my call. Thanks for making it. Yeah, my uh, question or uh, thing is about uh, retirement. I retired uh, four years ago at sixty-two. Okay. And what I've experienced is probably like a lot of people have. You're not prepared for a lot of increases that come your way, like Medicare, right. medical insurance that drops, and you have uh, subsidiaries that have to be picked up. Yep. Also, uh, inflation and other things. So my thing is, you know, you're talking about you need at least 80% of what you were living on before you retired. Yes. I would plan for 110%. That way, <laughs> that way. <laughs> That'd be know, nice. No surprises. That's right. In other words, you're saying in your experience that you actually need just as much as when you're working oh. as you as when you're retired your expenses do not go down absolutely they and then you have to do keep not up. go down jack i've heard people tell me this before many times it goes up not because you're necessarily you know living a more lavish lifestyle but what happens is you have a lot of freedom and there's several things freedom means well i'm going to go have some fun fun sometimes costs money the other side is what you pointed out well as we all get older medical costs tend to go up not down Dramatically. <laughs> yeah, and some of it, you know, if you have an illness, you need to be prepared for that. You know, that's one of my biggest fears, Jack, is, uh, you know, Medicaid, Medi-Cal, Medicare. How much is that going to pay? 
And how much do I have to pay? It's going to get less and less unless they get this thing corrected. Yeah. Do you see that happening? Well, I have no clue, so I would say no. Yeah, I think they're going to make us pay a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Because where are they going to get the money? Taxes. Yeah. (laughs) Or raise taxes. Yeah. Yeah. Jack, appreciate the question. Appreciate the comment. I appreciate that. Yeah, everybody. Just, you know, in retirement, you need to have money or you're not going to retire. And I'll say this. You don't have to retire. Retirement is not necessarily what we all think it is, where you just stop working and you kick back and you don't do anything. No, you might retire from what you don't want to do to something you do want to do and still get paid. You might cut back your hours but not truly retire, retire, maybe work part-time or have special projects and become a consultant. There's different ways to do it, and I would suggest that you don't just cut it cut and dry. I don't think you should just cut it off completely because that's a shock to your system, trust me on this. Both your financial system and your mental system, you know, all of a sudden stop working. It's hard to do. Now, if you have a question about a stock or an IRA, college savings plan, well, maybe buying a house, mortgages, reverse mortgages, we're here for you. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. Listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments though, 888 99 Chart, 888 99 CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. Let's go talk to Paul. Hi, Paul. I want to know what is the highest amount of Social Security a person get per month if they do everything perfectly and they wait until 70 to get it? What's the highest payout you mean to a person? That if he say you know he paid the maximum Social Security benefits over the last thirty years, and what could it be his maximum payout be? Is that what you're asking? I'm trying to do that. Yes. Uh, it probably. I'm. I'm. I'm giving you an educated guess. Okay, an educated guess based on my own personal uh, calculations, and it'd be about five thousand dollars a month. Okay, I'll be not below that too much. That's good. I thought yeah. it'd be ten thousand or something like that. Yeah, no, it's not like that. It's not that much. No, they they don't. Yeah, they, they cap it obviously. But yeah, that would be very good if you could do that. That's be excellent. Thanks for the call. It's a good call, Paul. Good call, Paul. Appreciate it. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hi, Stephen, Justin. Just want to say thank you very much for the podcast. I really enjoy the show and everything that I've learned. I have a quick question about value stocks and growth stocks. So recently we have noticed that bond yields have risen because of inflation expectations. And I still think that inflation expectations will continue to rise. So if that happens, I I believe that the bond yields will rise. And if that happens, how would that affect growth stocks? And then how would that affect value stocks? Thank you very much. I really appreciate it and hope to hear the answer on the podcast. Thank you. Bye. Well, the answer to higher bond yields and how it affects different companies comes back to a discounted cash flow method. That's how on Wall Street and most of finance assets are valued, right? You take the current value of future cash flows and those future cash flows are discounted by what's called the discount rate. 
And in finance, that is typically the 10-year treasury rate. And as that goes up, those future cash flows are discounted at a higher rate, which means today they're worth less. Okay. So that's the basics of what a discounted cash flow method is. Now, in, in growth stocks and companies that are expected to grow a lot over the next five, 10 years, the future cash flows that are expected are valued very highly today when interest rates are low, right? Because you're only disc, you're discounting high growth, high numbers in the, in the, in the far away future by a small amount each and every year. And therefore today's value of those large future cash flows is very high. But when interest rates go up, suddenly the value of current value of those longer dated cash flows decline. And so if interest rates do continue to go up because inflation goes up, you're going to see multiples on these growth names come down. You're already starting to see that to some extent, some uh, lower momentum in a lot of these names, some consolidation, uh, some of them making lower highs. And on the value side, the market's not expecting big high returns or high growth for these type of companies. They tend to be uh, lower growth. They grow tend to be with the overall economy, you know, three, five, 10% a year. Uh, and those future cash flows aren't expected to be a whole lot higher than they are today. So those changes in interest rates don't affect them very much. On top of that, if inflation picks up, oftentimes a lot of those value names are commodity names, right? So their businesses in the near term are also going to do much, much better in a higher inflationary environment. So I hope that unpacked it for you. It's certainly a complex topic, but hopefully that distilled it down as simple, simply as I possibly can, and hopefully you could digest it. Hey, Stephen, Justin, this is Vamsi calling from DC area. Love your show. Been listening to the show over a year now. I had a question regarding the IPOs. I am really interested in a few of the companies which are planning to go public this year. And I've been tracking a few last year. By the time I would wanted to invest in it, the stock or the share price doubles. And then there's a lot of volatility. So the share never really sells at the price that they intend to sell, it always jumps way high than I expect. So is there a way to get to that pool of pre-IPO uh, where I can buy before it becomes pub public? Thank you. Okay, so an IPO, initial public offering, very often spikes when it first comes out. And if it does, you're not ever going to get it at the offering price because that's a hot IPO and many of those are, you know, they're, they, only the big institutions get those prices. You're never going to get them. If you ever get offered an IPO at the IPO offering price, that means it's not a very good IPO. Don't do it. Don't do it. Can you buy companies before they become IPO? Yeah. You can invest in you can invest in companies. Many times they have investment rounds of smaller companies, but they're very, very high risk. So they're probably not going to get to it yet. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice. Or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security? Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. 
InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.